Hello and welcome to another episode of the Fundamentals Podcast. I'm your host, Harley. Joining me today is the other half of the Ramblin' and Amblin' Podcast, Joshua Glenn. Josh was kind enough to give me some of his time to talk about a series of films that are incredibly close to his heart, and that is The Matrix Films. We cover everything from the groundbreaking introduction that was the first film to the much maligned and perhaps misunderstood sequels. There's so much that we get into in this conversation, and I really hope you guys enjoy it. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation. This is The Matrix with Joshua Glenn. Hello, Josh, and welcome to the Fundamentals podcast. Hello, thank you very much for having me on. It's nice to be here. Oh, pleasure's all mine. So um, when we started chatting, you threw out a few ideas, and one that jumped out was, I say, arguably one of the most influential sort of sci-fi series we've had mm -hmm. probably ever, but certainly mm. in, in the modern era, and that is the Matrix trilogy, soon to be a quadrilogy, depending oh, yes. on, on how things go. So before we get to any of that, I'd love to know, from your your story really how did you sort of stumble across the matrix what's your journey with the series um i remember um way back in in the summer of 99 when i was a, a wee lad a little nipper um and star wars phantom menace was was the big summer blockbuster of that year and i don't know if you remember there was so much merchandise across the board it was dominating the whole conversation yeah. um, it seemed for a, for a young lad of, of six or however old there was back then um, but then there was there was this kind of certainly within my limited worldview there was uh, this alternative take that the the hot summer film was not Star Wars but in fact this little thing called The Matrix. And I had a cousin who I looked up to an awful lot who was a couple of years older than I was and he was plugged into the cool things in a way that I as a as such a young boy wasn't aware of. And he was he he had got a pirate copy VHS of The Matrix and said yeah this. Uh, this Star Wars thing, yeah, it's all right, but look, the cool thing at the minute is is this thing, The Matrix. And of course, I wasn't allowed to watch it yet because it was a 15 film and my parents were quite strict in terms of what I could watch for a while. Um, but I was aware of it as this cool alternative sort of, uh, to me, underground version of, of Star Wars. So for a few, couple of years after that, I it was a forbidden fruit to me. I, I'd see little clips here and there I had an uncle who was very much into martial arts movies and he showed us the clip of Morpheus and Neo fighting in the dojo and I thought, oh, I've got my gift to see this movie. <laughs> and then finally, I think my parents allowed me to rent it on video. Remember back in the old days of video? I sound like an old fart. I'm not, I'm not that old, but you know, <laughs> I was sort of just at the cutoff point of, of, uh, of, of things not quite being on demand. And I finally rented it and I watched it and I must have been around about 10. So still a bit too young to really get the most out of the philosophical undertones of the whole thing. But old enough to find the visual side of things and, and the world building. Very, very cool. And um, um, I think, yeah, I think it's one of those things. I It's one of the first DVDs that I bought once we all you know switched over to DVD. And it's one that I revisited an awful lot. And... There was just something so beguiling and mysterious about it. It invited you in. It, it made you really work to tease out the answers. And uh, and, and for, a, for a young sort of budding uh, movie nerd uh, the, the, that I was, it was it was a really exciting thing to cut on onto. And uh, and then of course, 
the sequels came out eventually, which were much maligned, um, but increasingly over the years, one of the, the cultural hills that I will die on, uh, and one of the reasons that I'm here today with you talking about this, is that I think the sequels are much, 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 much better than the reputation allows for, uh, you know, suggests that they are. And um, that's something, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a stance that I've come to over time and with, with quite a bit of work. <laughs> but we'll get to that, I'm sure, over Absolutely the course of this. Absolutely, we will. But, uh, but no, I, I love that intro because I think we must be a similar age then. Mm, so, yeah, uh, yeah. Because um, at the time of recording, I am 26. So how old would you be? Uh, 28. Well, there you go. So, yeah, I, I was that very similar, actually, in mm-hmm. terms of that. I, I totally agree. I was that prime age for The Phantom Menace and all of that. That was my entry into that world, which keeps coming up on this show. And I think we will be covered <laughs> at some point, I promise. But, <laughs> but yeah, like yourself, I remember hearing about it, about this, this yeah, this sort of crazy sci-fi kung fu yeah, movie. And, yeah. and same thing. I was, I was way too young. Um, but yeah, as, as I got into my teens, it was like, oh yeah, I remember hearing about this film and I've heard bits and pieces of it and friends had recanted it to me, had seen it. So yeah, finally sitting down and watching it and probably the same way. Yeah, I didn't fully get all the, the sort of deeper parts of it, but it was like, oh, this is really cool. This is this crazy action movie and mm-hmm. sci-fi and I was really into all of that. But yeah, like, you're absolutely right. I think that first film certainly opened up a generation, didn't it, of, of sort of film lovers and kind of blending these weird worlds together mm. of, of sort of it's you're very i guess what you'd expect from your sort of bruce lee jackie chan kind of mm. movies to then bringing it into ai and all this sort of other stuff so am i right in thinking it's all based on like a source material isn't it well it's it, it's kind of a much like star wars kind of synthesized early 20th century form so it, it took westerns and by extension samurai films and and all those fairy tales and, and Joseph Campbell's Heroes myth, and he synthesized them into this weird new kind of blockbuster. I think The Matrix does a very similar thing to the second half of the 20th century. So it takes these, these martial arts films, it takes cyberpunk and anime and film noir, and it it weaves them into this weird new thing. But it, it was an original concept from the Wachowskis. It wasn't based on a particular existing oh. property. It was It was an original, I suppose... You could, you could definitely. I mean, Ghost in the Shell is very much a, a ground zero. Akira is, is something that is, is very much part of its lineage, and then by extension, like dystopian films, like obviously Blade Runner for any dystopian film, Blade Runner is a huge reference point. Um, but there, there was nothing. It wasn't based on an existing graphic novel or anything. It was, it was born of the Wachowskis' weird, disparate interests. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I don't mm. know why. I thought it was based on. A comic or something but that, that's incredible even even mm, more reason yeah. i think so to get into <laughs> it then so um yeah sort of going from there then talk about the first one so it had such a massive cultural impact didn't it sort mm. of straight out of the gate so it was the sort of turn of the century do you think things like um oh what's it called the sort of millennium bug and stuff like that all this kind of interest around technology it sort definitely of helped it kind of get this reputation i think so i think i i'll out of the gate, I must admit that I'm a huge, huge fan of the Wachowskis. And I know their films have received various varying responses from people, and uh, there are people that like different films in their filmography and, and dislike other ones. I love what they do, and I love how they just they, they create their own mythologies or they will adapt something and put their own unique spin on it. And sometimes that thing correlates with the zeitgeist, like The Matrix did, and sometimes it doesn't. 
Um, but yeah, with, I think with the matrix, with the matrix, it's, it was something, it was a passion project they'd been gestating on for a while and it just happened to come. It was a, a, a perfect aligning of stars because they had, they, they'd signed, um, a three screenplay deal, uh, with Warner brothers in which they sold assassins bound and the matrix. And they wanted to direct the matrix, but because they were, they, they didn't have experience um, with, with something that big. They had to make something else beforehand to kind of prove they could handle it. So they made Bound. Have you seen Bound? Uh, I don't think I have, no. Their first film. It's, it's Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon. And it's this really steamy, kind of erotic thriller with a very, very Hitchcockian right. take. It's kind of like how Chris Nolan made Memento, this really shoestring, small-scale noir, before blowing up and just taking over Hollywood and making these huge visions. And the Wachowskis did a very similar thing. They made Bound, this really small, self-contained noir, and they kind of proved that they could handle filmmaking and they could do an awful lot with not very much. And that allowed them to be in a position in the late 90s. I think it was, I think it was early 98 that Matrix started filming. So it was, it was very much they had got themselves into a position where they could make this film and allow it to be released at a time when, like you say, the Millennium Bug paranoia and, and Y2K and all that business was was very much in the peak of people's consciousness. So it, it was it was it was a perfect aligning of of stars for this film to really come out and dominate the conversation like it did. Yeah, I think that's incredible, and um, I'd love to know. So yeah, sort of t- talk to you a bit more about their their side of it. Then, like, did they have they ever revealed what it was that kind of I guess push them in the direction of this story because it's it's quite a interesting concept, mm. you know, the, the core idea of the film. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, there, there, there are many, many, there are many, many readings, and when we get onto the to the sequels, I, I can sort of get, delve into what I think the whole series is about. But I think that certainly looking at the Wachowskis and and, and their personal experiences since the film, they they since came out as trans, and they are now Lillian Lana Wachowski. And I think you can definitely view this film as, and you can pretty much view all their films as allegories for the personality and, in a more spiritual sense, the soul not being bound to a particular human form. So that the, the body you're born into, in, in a sense, is not um, who you are necessarily, you know. And, and, and the Matrix is all like the, the, the big tagline was free your mind. And I think sort of knowing what they were sort of knowing that the, the, these feelings and things that were going on that they they hadn't yet revealed to the world. I think it very much, this film works as an allegory for, for, for sort of coming out and for allowing yourself to be who you want to be and that kind of thing. So I, I, I suspect, I, I, it's not my place as a, as a cis man to psychoanalyze, you know, the, the, these, these folks, but um, I think certainly that, that must've been at play because um, you can very much read that thread throughout a lot of their films, uh, similar ideas. I mean, look at Cloud Atlas, for instance, that's all about how the same spirit lives on through various different bodies over the course of thousands of years. Um, but, but beyond that, in, in terms of, in terms of sort of the, the extreme genre exercise that it is, I think it is just these, these extreme passionate, proud nerds that they were wanting to take all these things they love kind of like Edgar Wright does at the moment. Uh, he, he, he kind of makes the kind of film and Tarantino as well. They make the kind of films they would like to watch. I think the Wachowskis, they had this, this really fertile creative period before they really hit pay dirt 
in the mid late nineties where they just they churned out a load of, of of great concepts and great scripts and and this was the one their sort of magnum opus at the time they poured all of their passions and all their interests into it and uh, and you can see like, when you when you watch it from the very very first frame just the the passion and the excitement is just pouring out of it you know absolutely because it's I I think I loved it because yeah the the concept of the idea of it's sort of a post-apocalyptic film mm. before those became just you know run of the mill and everyone's yeah. doing them and every sort of teen novel writer decided to use that as a backdrop for <laughs> love triangles yeah. you know we actually got an interesting concept and yeah like, yeah and um you know it's funny because I rewatched it in the cinema I think just over two years ago it had its twenty year yes, anniversary of course it did yeah and yeah. it still holds up. I was amazed Absolutely. watching it in, in, the, in the big screen, thinking like, wow, this is incredible. Mm. I kind of felt like watching it for the first time and you know, it has this massive scope and they, and I think, as you say, the stars aligned. I mean, the fact they got the casting that they did. Yeah. Of the big, I mean, Keanu Reeves sort of in the 90s was really at his peak. And it's, I mean, he's had a bit of a renaissance in the last few years, but I think probably getting people like him on board would have been a bit of stroke of luck for them and yeah. sort of just help them line things up. And what you said a minute ago about the passion, I, I remember this actually, because I remember watching the behind the scenes DVD and they were very concerned about lots of different aspects of the movie. So like the cast famously trained, didn't they, for like eight or nine months in a dojo. It was dojo a long and, time. Yeah, it was a long yeah. time. And, um, you know, they didn't want to use stunt doubles where they didn't have to, which is sort of nowadays we think of, you know, some other films you might think, oh, yeah, that's commonplace. But actually, a lot yeah. of stunt teams nowadays are so good, you wouldn't even notice they swap them out. Yeah, but, yeah. But back then, they were like, no, we want cast front and centre. <laughs> These folks um, to do their things, yeah. And and even stuff, there's a bit where um, I think a, a really awesome shot where a helicopter crashes into a building and then there's like a yeah. huge explosion of, gra- of glass and Trinity's like flying through the air. And it's a great shot. But... They, they talked about it. They spent, I think, something like a couple of months researching different types of glass. <laughs> yes. What would break a certain way and what would look... I just remember, like, that stays with me because I'm like, that's incredible yeah. dedication to your yeah. craft. And I, I, I feel like it's a mixture of all of those things and what you said that kind of made it such a smash hit mm. the, the way that it was. And, you know, it's gone on to have an amazing impact on pop culture and probably did a real good number for people selling trench coats, I imagine as well. And sunglasses. <laughs> and sunglasses you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, we, we can definitely come back to the, some of the stuff there. Yeah. But I'd love to know then, cause you've already mentioned it and I think it's well worth talking about. Yeah. The sequels, the sequels, the yes. sequels. And I agree with you for the most part, actually, I've always felt this. I've always thought that when you watch them together, mm-hmm. it's actually all right. You know that you can see the whole story arc and the picture and everything they're trying. Yeah, maybe it's not as well constructed as the first one or well paced, whatever. But yeah, I believe they work well. So I'd love to know from your point of view. Yeah, what yeah. is it that makes you want to die on this hill? <laughs> <laughs> I do love. I love dying on a hill like this. Um, I for a long time I've always thought that the sequels were were deeply flawed, interesting, kind of admirable failures. And then it was only watching them. I showed them my girlfriend at the start of lockdown and I just like suddenly everything clicked and I thought, oh no, these films genuinely are great. What, what they're going for is really interesting. So I, I mentioned previously how um, Star Wars is very much a work through of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey and, and the Matrix is kind of, is very much in the same, along the same path. It, it's um, your classic hero's journey. It, it works as a Christian, a, Christ, a Christ metaphor that kind of thing. It's kind of like the, the 
the perfect example of a hero's journey. And I think the sequels, on first viewing, it's not immediately apparent what they're doing because it's obfuscated an awful lot by indecipherable, impenetrable dialogue um, and very, very almost exhausting, an exhausting procession of action sequences. And after what I think on, on first viewing, maybe second viewing, third viewing as well, you are kind of battered into submission and you are unable to connect with it in the same way as you are the first one because it's so, it doesn't have the same advantage the first one did. Um, and it's not apparent what it's doing. But what I kind of cottoned on to, the crux of what the sequels are doing is kind of dismantling everything the first one does so well. So the first one, like I said, is a perfect hero's journey. And the second one, very, very stubbornly and staunchly, its climax is built around a refutation of that. Uh, so, you know, if you can remember the 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 whole second film is building towards Neo getting to the source of uh, of the machines and turning it off and, and saving Zion, which is humanity's final stand in the real world, saving Zion from annihilation by these machines. So you have the entire film, you're primed for this epic confrontation between Neo, the one, and his destiny, which is turning off the machines and saving humanity. And what you actually get, <laughs> what you actually get instead, he, he gets to the source, he opens his door, and you've got this Colonel Sanders-looking gentleman in a white suit <laughs> sitting in front of a bunch of screens, um, waxing lyrical for what feels like half an hour, but in reality is about maybe eight, nine minutes. Um, <laughs> just you, 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 Sounding like he's swallowed a thesaurus and is vomiting at the audience. And vis a vis ergo. Yeah. Vis a vis concordantly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and, <laughs> and it, it, it's such a it's such a, a, a rug pull in terms of uh, the climax of a summer blockbuster because the, the, these came out. It came out in March um, in 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 May, uh, and then the, the third one came out in November of the same year, two thousand three. And it's such it's so antithetical to what you expect the climax of a film like this to be that. It was ripe for parody at the time. I remember there was an MTV Movie Awards parody of it with Sean William Scott and Justin Timberlake with, with Bill Farrell playing the architect, which I return to quite a bit. I find that probably funnier than I should. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but if it's one of those things where at, at face value it's ridiculous, but the more you kind of burrow into what he's saying and the more you think about that in the context of what you've seen, what he's essentially saying to Neo is, you aren't the first person to be, you, you aren't the first one. You're not the first sort of saviour. What you are is a kill switch, essentially. So this whole thing about human beings being freed and launching a resistance and the machines coming towards the city and the, the, the one being, being freed and, and the one who is destined to save humanity, this is all preordained. This is all part of our system. And what we do when, when your predecessors, because Neo... Neo's version of the one is the sixth iteration of the one since the beginning of the Matrix. And the architect kind of says to him, what your predecessors do is they return to the source, they reset the Matrix, um, they, they pick a hundred or so survivors to repopulate Zion, begin again, and the Matrix kind of starts from year zero. And then this whole, you know, hundreds, thousands of years cycle continues until the seventh version of the one comes along and does the same thing again. And that is such a... I think because it's so 
flying in the face of what the first one does. The first one is is presents it as oh, this is this is a, a unique new thing that's happening, and the sequel just says no, it's not. This is you've seen this thing over and over and over again, and it is part of this ongoing cycle of the same old, same old hero's journey, and that. I just find that so bold. I, I love that as, an, as a notion. I love that as an idea. But the difference being this time around is that Neo's version of the one, he refuses to do what his predecessors do. He instead decides to leave, not go to the source, not reset the Matrix, but instead fly and save Trinity, who is his lover, who uh, he sees as the most important thing in the world to him. And in doing so, he sets humanity on this path to ultimate freedom from this preordained cycle of machine control um and i i just think on a, on, a, on, a, on a macro level that kind of story structure it is kind of the series having its cake and eating it too because i the first matrix i think is a perfect movie it's one of my all-time favorites and i think it, it, it clearly is the best of all of all three of these movies but if you are going to have a sequel to a film like that that doesn't necessarily call out for a sequel this is kind of the best way i think you can do that it, it kind of it it enhances and deepens the mythology of the first one um it pokes at these, these corners of the world and it also plugs it into this larger narrative conversation about the limits of control and what freedom actually is and what free will actually is and and um you know what what we do with these stories that are given to us and uh i just find that fascinating i really love that as an idea and then the, once once near has been set on that path the third one is him forging a new path um, to establish this ultimate freedom from this existing cycle of, of control. I mean, that that's a kind of very intellectualized reading of, of, of the whole thing. I think on a sensory level, there's some really cool action beats in these movies. And, and, and I think the first one benefits from being something that is so new. And do you remember the advertising campaign for the first one? That was It was all very... Um, mystery box and, and, and it kind of the, i think the, the main thing was what is the matrix people were lured in with very little information i i yeah because that kind of passed me by but i've seen some like sort of retroactive look backs at it mm. and yeah i've seen like the posters and some yeah. clips and I you, think, you're isn't not there doing a, much yeah no isn't it's like an advert where somebody answers a phone and it's mm-hmm. something like that where it's like you know what's the matrix and it's yeah this whole sort of viral campaign which you, you don't yeah. really see anymore so i think no, this must no. have worked really well so the, the nearest thing you get is, is chris nolan's films they're they're allowed they, they kind of get by on the size of yeah. his name but um the, the, the first matrix very much gets by on the thrill of the new like the whole thing is it lures you in with this tantalizing mystery what is the matrix and then it one of uh, i think it's either the very start or the very end of the oh it's the, the very end of the matrix when neo says i'm going to show these people something you don't want them to see that kind of thing and and the idea is the Wachowskis want to show us, the audience, something fresh and something new with all these elements that have defined um, pop culture for the past you know, half century. I think the sequels, they don't quite have that same fresh out of the box feel, so it's not immediately apparent how exciting they are. But watching them again, I was really struck by how, how ballsy and how well fleshed out a lot of the action set pieces are in, in the sequels yeah no i do you know again i agree with a lot of what you said mm. and I, i've thought about this for years that i i think what you said earlier is true like perhaps the packaging that it comes in puts a lot of people off because yeah i mean like the freeway chase is incredible and the fact oh. that they you know when, when you learn that they built that thing yeah 
yeah and fit in it like some of the stuff they put in there was incredible but it's one of those movies i think both of them could do with a better sound mixing mm. which in fairness there are still people today i'm looking at you christopher nolan that needs to learn <laughs> from this so i i kind of let it go so i'm like well they're yeah. not the first they won't be the last yeah uh be a much more stripped down script especially at those core moments like you said i was talking to somebody the other day funny enough about that exact scene with the architects yeah and we were saying this like if you just strip away all the <laughs> the weird choices of words and the mumbling what's actually at the core of what he's yeah. saying is quite interesting and yeah kind of, it's a great twist yeah but it, it gets it gets lost in this minutia and this bizarre <laughs> performance um yeah and then i think probably the third thing is you could just edit down a lot of it you could there's a certain scenes and, and action beats where you're like you could probably just cut this out <laughs> and if and if they'd streamlined it a bit better mm. then yeah perhaps it would have been more you know perhaps uh, better received but i like i like the point that you've just made that yeah it, it was a kind of a an underground hit in a way it's like an indie hit like no one's expecting this to do really well but it did smash hit you know huge cultural sensation and yeah the idea that okay there must be a sequel mm. and so there is one a couple of years later and they do a two-parter in the same year yeah and then the narrative that they go with is yeah the complete opposite to what you would expect <laughs> yeah i I, th- I agree with you i think there's something actually quite genius about yeah. that yeah it's, it's just it's ballsy mm. isn't it it's just it's just yeah. audacious mm. Yeah, and I think again, it perhaps if they just maybe tweak some of it and made it a little <laughs> bit more accessible to people, then maybe it would have hit. But then again, I I agree with you. I think that the first Matrix, in particular, all of them really are high concept sci-fi movies. Yeah, and the thing with high concept films is, and this isn't to be you know dismissive of, of people's intelligence or anything, but some people just don't like them. Mm. Like you know, I I personally am a huge fan of Nolan films um you know like the prestige uh inception stuff like that which yeah the same sort of thing like they're not actually terribly complicated at the core once you understand what's going on but some people just don't like it some people yeah. just want big action film and i think because the first matrix has all of that to offer like you can just enjoy it on a surface level yeah you know bells and whistles cool action scenes yeah okay i sort of get the concept that's fine and like you say the sequels then go well, hold on, we're going to really dive into <laughs> yes. the, the mythology and, and all the crazy stuff in, in this world. And yeah, surprise, this is one of six, you know, things like that. Yeah, exactly. Suddenly you're like, wait, what? Yeah, yeah. And you're, you're either like like yourself or me, you're either going to tune in and go, yeah. okay, tell me more, or you're going to go, I'm lost, what's happening? You know? <laughs> are, they, is it, are they fighting yet? Oh, they're not. Okay, he's still talking. So I can kind of understand that. And if someone listening to this... yeah feels that way that's fine but josh straight away i think you've done an amazing job of explaining what's probably put a lot of people off in the first place Mm. i can understand i really can understand i think that the nolan comparison i think is is brilliant because take inception Mm. for instance that that film there's an awful lot of exposition in that film the first two thirds are kind of explaining the rules and then the final third the first two thirds explain the rules so the final third can kind of just do its thing and you you, don't, you, yeah. you can just by that point you know what everyone is doing they don't have to stop and explain it you can just enjoy the the sort of the the cinematic quality of it i think the first matrix is, just does, does a similar thing it lures you in with this tantalizing mystery and then it slowly fleshes out the rules of this world so for the final 
at the final hour of the first Matrix, it is just like all-timer of an action sequence after all-timer of an action sequence. And you already know by this point how they can do what they do. You know the stakes. You, you know sort of the, the flesh and bone of this world. And it's so that kind of that structure of a blockbuster, that explaining the rules to allow the finale to just be purely cinematic with no need to, to explain these things anymore, that, that, that's a really, I think it's a really fair trade-off. And the audience understands that bargain, I think. They kind of get it. But then... If, if to, to continue the Nolan, uh, Nolan analogue, um, the Matrix sequels are similar to Tenet in, in that they they don't. It's not the same deal you've got. So you go in expecting to to be sort of shown around before everything cuts loose, but instead you have to just keep up from the start and you have to do your homework and you can't just sit there and you can't just sit there and be entertained. I think you you do have to work at it if on the, on the, if you want to avoid being frustrated by it. And you're right that that is you know, for a lot of folks, off-putting for, for a blockbuster. I mean, when I first watched them, certainly, um, I, I thought, oh, what, what, what is this? I just, I'm not into this. This is, this is weird. This is, this is lame. No, thank you. Um, but, you know, over time, I don't know, there's just something beguiling about them, I think, and I wanted to get to the bottom of them. I think it also helped that um, back in the mid to late noughties, there was this big bumper ultimate matrix collection box set that came out and that was very much when i was in the, the peak of my collector's edition dvd mania so i obviously i got that and i watched the sequels over and over again and just delved into them and wanted to eke out the meaning and figure out what was going on and a friend of mine called it stockholm syndrome but i, I think it is just <laughs> <laughs> which i understand no i i i just i, I really like i think i think you're right i think the 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 relationship this film establishes is different to the to the first Matrix film, and it's off-putting initially. And, and and the packaging, like you say, the packaging it comes in, it it's not very appealing. But if you are willing to work with that and to say, okay, so I'm not going to get the same thing again. This is something new. If you go with it and if you do work at it, there's a lot of there's a lot of great stuff under there to decipher. It just yeah. kind of. I don't know. It, it sort of succeeds sometimes in spite of itself. It, it it's um, not not dissimilar to the prequels. The prequels have a really great. The Star Wars prequels have a really great narrative underpinning them all, and that was something I, I thought about suggesting to do on this podcast: the Star Wars prequels. <laughs> um, I think George Lucas sometimes falls over himself because he he's unable to really express it in the best possible way, whereas the Matrix sequels. I don't think I think the, the Wachowskis tell the story in a in a better way. There's just so much stuff that it's overwhelming, and you're not quite sure where to focus. And as a result, you're overwhelmed, and it. I think it can leave you dissatisfied, and you know most of all confused. No one likes being confused watching a film, certainly if they think that they're being cheated out of a satisfying narrative. You know, it's about the it's about the 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 agreement that the film makes with you going in you want you want to be clear on the terms of what you're about to watch and i think narratively the second film in the matrix trilogy um spits in the face of what the first one does in a, in a, in a way it, it's dismantling yeah. of that but it, it also the how it's operating as a blockbuster is different to what you might expect coming in off the back of the first one if that makes sense Absolutely. I, I think, yeah, when you, you see most action movies today, they are kind of 
usually a very very simple concept story whatever mm. um it's it's very rare that you get something that then has a high sort of concept yeah thing in the middle of it that's rooted in science fiction and mythology and archetypes and so much more yeah so yeah i i kind of think in a way of a weird analogy it would be like you listen you know you get someone who brings out i don't know like a pop rock record and it's really mass appeal yeah nice and simple everybody loves it millions of copies sold and then their next album they go okay here's my progressive jazz (laughs) funk album and everyone's like what (laughs) yeah and and you're gonna you're gonna get a core group of people who are gonna go well actually no there's something in here and you know maybe people who understand music or just appreciate that yeah i think but i think and again, this isn't being disparaging. It's just a fact mm. that a large chunk of that audience is going to go, yeah, this isn't for me. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and that's fine. And again, that's sure. fine. But but I agree with you. So I think sticking with this then, looking at them as, as a package. Yes. You've mentioned it already that the hero's journey, the archetype, the character of Neo, I think is a really fascinating one. Mm. And I think you're right that there's something to be learned about, yeah, that sort of studying the... the the typical hero's journey. And I, I kind of touched upon this a little bit uh, with a previous guest I had, Tony Black. He's written a whole book on uh, mythology and the myth arc, and it's really fascinating. Yeah, And there's, there's lots of stories that do this where they kind of take the familiar and then go, let's just tweak it. Let's do something different. Mm. So yeah, that, that, so sort of from the beginning then, what, what do you think about the, the character of of Neo or, or Mr. Anderson, as he's often referred to. Mr. Anderson. Well, um, <laughs> play, you, you can't help it. You can't, no. It's, no. It, Hugo Weaving just has such a, a such um, relish in delivering those lines. Mr. Anderson. Um, no, I, I, I love Neo. I think originally the Wachowskis approached Will Smith to play him. Did, uh, had you That's heard right. that? Yeah. And yeah. Will Smith apparently didn't understand the, um, he, he couldn't get his head around it and instead went for Wild Wild West. Um, yeah, that worked out well. <laughs> <laughs> so they ended up uh, with Keanu Reeves, who I think is just perfect casting because um, in the f- in the first movie he does he plays this hacker character uh, who dreams of there being something more. He's dissatisfied with what he what he's fed to him. He's, he's got a boring corporate job. The world is very very drab and sort of moldy green and he just he, he he wants he wants there to be something else to give his boring plight meaning and he's seeking out answers he's seeking out this character called morpheus who will be able to tell him what he wants to hear and of course he does find morpheus and he does tell him what he wants to hear that there is more than you see what this is all this around you this is not reality this is the wall that's been pulled over your eyes and then the whole blue pill red pill thing comes out and he follows rabbit down the hole and sees how deep the hole goes and wakes up in the real world. And um, I, I know, I think Keanu Reeves is an easy enough fella to take the mickey out of because he can be perceived as being quite wooden. And sometimes he is horribly miscast. Sometimes he's not like pretty much any period piece. Keanu Reeves is strange casting, but I think yeah. in, in this film, he is literally, he's a blank slate, isn't he? When he wakes up in the in the real world, he's never used his eyes before. He's never physically moved in that space before. And he is, I suppose for all intents and purposes, he's the audience surrogate into that film. He is the one to whom all the information about the world is fed to. And um, he's our eyes and ears in that world. So I think, I really like Keanu Reeves. I think, I mean, he, he isn't the best 
actor of all time, but I think he he's pretty perfect for this role, and he 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 brings an awful lot to it. And he it's just perfect casting because the whole thing exists in a heightened register. It's not going for naturalism; it's going for this heightened, almost self-aware sort of pop culture register. Um, and then yeah, and then obviously he he did he goes on in certainly in the first film to fulfil the, the 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 basic hero's journey. He you know, refuses the call. He then picks up the call again and he, he proves himself to to be who he was um destined to be uh what i think is is most interesting about the character of john anderson or neo or the one is that as he exists as he exists kind of in his base form he isn't really he he is he is part of the machine's overall plan as we are revealed, as is revealed by the architect in the second one, the one is not. There's no such thing as the one. The, the one is is kind of a kill switch, basically. Um, so it, it's not really him. At least at the start, it's not really him who has the agency, and he isn't really the one who brings about, sets in motion the events that are going to bring about change. What actually happens is the oracle is the one who feeds in a little bit of information that sets this cycle of, of machine control slightly off kilter. So when Neo makes the choice at the end of Reloaded to save Trinity as opposed to restarting the Matrix, um, that is because the Oracle told Trinity that her destiny was to fall in love with the One, and that then established a more localised form of love with the One that none of his predecessors had. The previous five Ones didn't have a love interest. They were kind of this... Um, virtuous, virginal, Jesus Christ type. So when it came to the meeting with the architect, they could quite easily say, okay, we'll reset the matrix, take some survivors essentially on an arc and, and repopulate the real world. Because Neo felt that one-to-one intimacy with Trinity, he was able to eschew that decision and take human course in a whole new direction. And it is that decision that sets up everything in the third film. So he, the, the point of him going to the source in Reloaded is to avoid the war of Zion because there's going to be huge casualties and nobody wants that. They want to try and nip that in the bud. That was never on the table, as is revealed by the architect. It's either reboot the Matrix, pick some survivors and, and, and sort of start a new Zion or go and save Trinity and the machines are going to wipe out the, the, the last human city. Um Neo takes a second option, but instead tries to broker a deal with the machines to establish a new status quo, essentially. So all of it is a long-winded way of saying that <laughs> he, the hero's journey that is presented to us in the first film is not the ultimate hero's journey of, of the series. Um, the, the whole, the, sort of the, the macro theme of the film is kind of rejecting this idea of freedom that is fed to us from existing power structures and deciding for yourself what freedom is based on your own idea of self-actualization which very much very much fits with with what the Wachowskis will have been going through at the time in terms of, of their later coming out but it also works in the context of Hollywood blockbusters as a kind of refutation of pre-packaged stories with like you say just slightly tweaked elements here and there and it kind of makes the argument for being a bit more, a bit ballsier in your storytelling and a bit more ambitious in what you want. Um, 
so yeah so ultimately in, in his original hero's journey form i think neo is he's kind of a pawn that the oracle moves into place but once he makes that decision at the end of the second film he's able to become something new in the third film he's able to become a new version of the one and bring about this new status quo for the human machine relationship yeah yeah i i totally agree with that and i love that insight and it's something i i've always thought was fascinating about his character is the theme of choice yes it's something that is extremely um embedded within the character as you say like for the the first sort of one and a half parts of the films really he he doesn't have a lot of agency as you say and that kind of absolute bomb drop of you know well actually everything you've done up to now is just part of a program as part of a system you know we're machines this is what we do this is what you do so then choosing to go in another direction because of human emotions like love Mm. and faith and all this stuff it's it's quite deep, I think. It's quite and it's quite beautiful in a way. Yeah, completely. You know, agree. Um, and then I I love the whole final showdown with him and Smith. You know, like wonky CG aside, <laughs> it's it's actually all right. And then the way that it all ends is because he makes a choice. Yeah. To stop fighting, and then of course Smith being a program, well, his purpose is fulfilled. He has no no reason to exist, so he just ultimately crashes. Yeah. You know and. And I think that's quite clever as well. Like that, that's another way of playing with the archetype of, you know, you've got a villain. What's a villain's purpose? What's to, to beat the bad guy, the good guy. So what happens when he, when he wins? Well, <laughs> nothing, yeah. you know, like it, uh, loads and loads of Disney films have, have shown us that. What happens when the bad guy wins? Well, it all falls apart. Mm. Because yeah. he's, <laughs> he's reached his goal. And then, then, then what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so it's the same kind of thing here, which is, I think is quite a clever way of inverting that storyline as mm-hmm. well um, on him. I tell you one character I'd love to get your insights on, and I think he's probably just as important with uh, with Neo, but he does take a bit of a back seat as the films go on, and that's the character of Morpheus. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because um, he's a massive player in the first film, and then obviously once Neo kind of gets his powers and takes his his position. Morpheus kind of shrinks back a little bit mm. into the, the background, but he still has a really important role. Yeah, no, it is a shame. I think the performance by Lawrence Fishburne in the first is it's just that, that might be the best in the film, right? It, it's so commanding. And that when, when Neo first meets him in the in a um in in, in the room when the, the, the thunder and lightning is, is going off and he's explaining what the matrix is, just, just spine tingles when that happens. Yeah. But you're right, it, it's weird. In the, the the second film, he's very much He's a he's a sort of um, a true believer in in Neo and, and Neo's power to to bring about change and to 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 stop the war from happening before it happens. Um, so he is all about guiding Neo to the source where he can shut off the machines and prevent the the war with Zion. Um, but of course, as we've said, the architect business happens, and Neo realizes that this thing that was sold to him as his destiny was very much a lie, and. He has to then go back into the real world and tell Morpheus, oh man, yeah, everything you believed in, uh, it is not really the case, man. So so the thing you've sort of predicated your life on, um, kind of all for naught. And it's, it's heartbreaking. There's, um, yeah. <laughs> I think um, 
the third film, he, he's very much a non-entity, isn't he? He kind of sits out an awful lot of that. And it's a real shame because he's a fantastic, he's a really interesting character and played wonderfully by Lawrence Fishburne. But that is very much, there's a moment at the end of the second film when Neo comes back from his meeting with the architect and he tells Morpheus the truth. Morpheus, he, he, it's a really great turn. There's a really subtle note of Morpheus's whole world is crumbling out from beneath him and it's a man of faith having his faith like god is essentially killed right in front of him and it's something like oh no it's it's melodramatic it's it's something like it cannot be no and then uh within you know a couple of narrative beats of that his ship the nebuchadnezzar is blown up by sentinels and there's a look on his face his eyes and his cheeks just, Mm. just completely sag as everything he knew to be true and to be uh, this light of hope in the world is extinguished from him, and um, it's a really it's a it's a tragic turn for the character that this man who gave his life he I mean, he doesn't die he, he not literally gave his life but he dedicated his life to this greater good, just having his faith um, not rewarded but um, what's the opposite of rewarded punished I suppose hmm. um, yeah yeah and yeah and and that doesn't mean unfortunately that in the third film he no longer has a purpose and. You know, that, that, that is a flaw. I, I would love for him to have had something more to do in the third film uh, instead of sort of lick his wounds and, you know, and, and be upset. But, um, yeah, I think certainly for the first two films, he has a really interesting arc. And it is nice that ultimately, by the end of the third film, by, by the third revolution, he is, uh, he is kind of given some kind of hope. He's able to look at the new dawn and see a new direction for his species. But... Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a real it's a real tragic turn for the character that he takes in a second film. Yeah, it, it, totally. I think yeah, there's that bit. I'm just thinking about that scene you described in Rio where he's watching the Nebuchadnezzar get blown up, and I think he says something under his breath like, "You know, I had a dream, and now that dream mm, is gone." Yeah, exactly. Or something, yeah. something like that, and it's just such a like you just want to give him a hug. Yeah. Like, Aw. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, but yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing because his character yeah represents this entire sort of theme of faith and hope in humanity and and you would think yeah if you if you're living in a post-apocalyptic world you're going to hang on to like any shred of of hope and yeah. light that you have so yeah to be told that ultimately that was fed to you by essentially the enemy yeah, yeah. that would absolutely crush somebody but as you say it the ray of hope sort of at the end of the third film of realizing that oh it doesn't didn't work out the way i wanted it to or is expecting it to mm. but maybe that's for the better and yeah you know, I I think that's a really interesting theme. And it's, yeah, as you said, it's carried very well on the shoulders of, of Lawrence Fishburne as, mm. as his character. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot of the others as well, I think Trinity goes through a similar arc as well. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I think, that, again, there's probably, there's a bit of contention with, with her ultimate destination in the story. She, she is the one who brings Neo into the world and, and um, she's certainly... Like Kruger makes first contact in the first film, and she, I think, uncharitably, you could say she has her agency taken away a little bit as the films go along. She's a bit of a damsel in distress in the second when he has to fly and save her, and ultimately, I think we're past the point of saying spoiler alert now. But oh yeah, spoiler, <laughs> and she, she she does ultimately die in the third film, and it's a, uh, um, and, and again, she isn't she's not much of an entity in the third film either, but. I don't know. I, I like the performance that Carrie Ann musters in that film. 
yeah. in, in, in all yeah. three films. And I suppose on a, on a, on 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 the the wider game board of this whole series that they are all to a point pawns of the oracle that the oracle wants to liberate the human race I, I, you know, that, that's how i read it anyway you could be a bit more cynical and say this is all part of an even greater cycle of control but Tr- trinity is very much um the recipient of the oracle's manipulation in kind of being pushed towards loving Nia, which ultimately allows him to become the ultimate one um but yeah i don't know what's your take on her as well, a character I, in the yeah series? i i do agree i think her and morpheus do they do suffer with being sort of pushed into the background mm. a bit which is a real shame because as you say carrie ann moss is fantastic in the role and i feel like in the first film in particular she has a lot of agency and it's, it's kind of definitely one of the earlier i think sort of heroine characters you know done really well um She's more than capable of handling herself in any situation, mm. and that and that's that's kind of nice to see. But I think as well, it's interesting that in order for Neo to kind of get to the point of becoming the one of reaching his destiny, is that he needs that support. Yeah, and that really she's the the last piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I think that's quite empowering in a way. That's that's kind of nice. Yeah, that you know, and that without ultimately without her, he's he's a lost man. He's still a man at at the, at the core of it all. I think Very that much. actually. I think that's really sweet. I think that's actually quite a nice... And again, it's these different human themes that they yeah. sprinkle in for the film. And love is, of course, a really powerful Absolutely. one. Absolutely. And it's his love for her that allows him to make that important choice in the second film that, that essentially yeah. frees humanity from this cycle of control with the machine. So, yeah, I, su- I suppose love conquers all. Yeah, it, it, you know, yeah it's... which is cheesy in itself, but yeah. that's okay. That's, you know, that that's kind of the whole point of the film, isn't yeah. it? It's, yeah, is, is it better to have everything run by machines and have it all sort of preordained and predestined and everything, or is it better to just experience things in the moment and go along with, yeah, the, the human condition. So see, these movies are deep. Um. And, and, and you know what? And like, they're, they're cheesy. They're, they're super cheesy yeah. and they're super earnest. And I, I, I love that. I think it's so easy, especially now it's so easy to, I sound like an old man yelling at a cloud again. It's so easy to be arch and ironic and, kind of hedge your bets and, and, and not put your heart on your sleeve just to avoid you know because it's not cool it's embarrassing whatever these movies are very very heart on sleeve the Wachowskis are very very heart on sleeve filmmakers and they really they paint in these huge broad emotional strokes and most of their films do boil down to love and freedom of human expression and you know the 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 the, 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 the messy emotions that make us unique and beautiful in our own ways and I mean, that in itself might put some people off, but I just, I love big, bold swings like that. I, I love earnestness and I, I love genuine, you know, genuine empathy in blockbusters, I suppose, and, and, and art in general. Yeah, no, me too. I, I've, I've said often on this show, and, I, and this, is a, this is a hill I die on, <laughs> that, that art, the whole point of art and you know and movies are art mm, television totally. acting is, is all part of the same big thing whether it's music painting whatever it's the whole point is to make you feel something mm. you know you can tell a story you can have fun, and, and sometimes it's to make you laugh or it's to make you you know be in awe of a crazy action scene or whatever that's fine feel excitement but they can go deeper and that's great and i and i, I like stuff like you said that takes a big swing yeah. and tries to sort of 
bring all of that together. And one thing I'm always fascinated with, because I've fallen in love with the whole AI subject anyway, because um, it just fascinates me, yeah. because at the core of it, it's rice is trying to get to what makes you people people. Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm not one of those people that necessarily believes that we'll ever get a machine to feel the way a human does. I mean, I don't know. Elon Musk might prove me wrong at some point, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm watching that guy. But in all seriousness, like that's a really interesting theme of these movies as well. Is this idea that programs and systems, and you've already mentioned really probably the biggest one, the Oracle, mm. kind of goes against convention. So I'd love to hear your insights on her character because I think she's yeah. a fascinating one. She, well, she she is um, she's kind of she she is the character who makes the decision that that kickstarts this whole series of films into 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 motion. And she she and the architect are the uh, the mother and father of the Matrix. He he's very much the cold analytical logistical side of things, and she's the she's the I mean. To be clear, they're both programs. They're both bits of code within a computer system, which is the matrix. Um, but she is she is the kind of the, the the part of the code who is responsible for human humans and populating it with humans and understanding humans. And I think her character, I mean, as, as an aside, the performance um, in the first film um, by the actress. Gloria Foster, I absolutely adore um, that. The, the scene in particular when Neo first meets her and she's baking cookies, and just it, it, it's it's such a warm, natural. Like, that that is the most naturalistic performance in the film. In, in a film of these wild, over the top, Hong Kong cinema style performances, that is such an earthy, really warm performance, and I I, I adore that. Um, but her her character is is a machine essentially. A program, a uh, part of the Matrix, who I think she, in some respects, longs to be human, and she's fascinated by humanity and the human condition in a way that the other machines are either unwilling or unable to be. Certainly, the architect, he doesn't, he doesn't feel the same. He he sees us as batteries, like you know, the, the, like like uh, the rest of the machines do. Whereas she, I think she sees herself as. Um, maybe a liberator, maybe someone who doesn't want to see a whole species exploited like the humans are being by that point in the Matrix. But she's certainly, she's someone who feels a deep well of compassion towards the human race and through her work and trying to understand humans develops a real sense of kinship to them, I think. And, and she ultimately pushes events into the place um, that they are at the start of the first film. And she, she, she kind of is the protagonist. You could make that argument, I think, in, in that she is the one who has the most agency and that she allows this all to happen. Because um, one of the final parts of Revolutions is the architect and the oracle meeting on the park bench as the new dawn is coming. And he says something like, um, it was a risky game you played. And, uh, and, and, you know, kind of makes it explicit that this is all a risk that she made in an attempt to create a better world for the human beings and uh yeah she's great she's a really cool character and it's, it's a we should say as well that that um the original actress uh, gloria foster she did die during production so unfortunately she wasn't in the third film and obviously you, you can't fight nature it's, it's, it's very very sad um but it was a wonderful performance in the first two films that she gave hmm. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And you're right. Like that's one of my favorite scenes of the, the first film was when he meets her for the first time. Cause it's not what you're expecting. No, no, it's not. You know, I almost feel like you, the architects, you're kind of like, Oh yeah, this makes sense. <laughs> he's, he's a weird, creepy dude in a room full of screens. You're like, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That's this tracks. But for the Oracle to be this like sweet sort of grandmotherly kind of figure that just has this sort of knackered old apartment and she's baking cookies and, you know, is, but then at the same time is throwing wisdom his way and is like predicting what he's going to do and stuff like it's, it's a very, like you said, it's a really lovely performance, really lovely scene. But it, again, it's, as a character, it fascinates me because I think it gets to the core of it, which is, as you say, this, this program wanting to understand what humans are mm. and wanting a better thing for them. And that's, that's quite a deep theme in itself as well. This idea of a, a, if a program can see the bigger picture and go, well, we can do better than this. You know, if we just do the same cycle again, we'll be right back here. Mm-hmm. You know, and as you said, the other programs are like, yeah, that suits us just fine and dandy. But obviously her character is written in a way to go, well, that's not good for them. Mm. I want to give them a better start. So she just throws the spanner in the works and and away they go. And I just, I think that's a really interesting character yeah. to put in a film and, and a, a lovely kind of theme to just sew into this, what otherwise you could write off, as we said earlier, as a big crazy action film. Yeah, actually yeah, absolutely. <laughs> got a yeah. lot of heart in the middle of it. And as you say, yeah, she's absolutely a protagonist. She just wants to, she, she, this whole this cycle that we have ongoing, it's not working. You know, it, it's destructive and it, it's excessive and it's wasteful. And on a purely functional level, establishing a new relationship would be surely more efficient and more beneficial, one based on trust and, you know, and love and respect. Yeah, and and I kind of love as well the the sequels, as we've already covered really a few bits already, but the sequels go into this idea that, yeah, that this has all happened before and, Mm. you know, and you meet other programs like the Maravindian, which is, I think, one of the weirdest characters (laughs) before. But but an interesting little, like, footnote of, you know, oh, yeah, there's, you know, this has happened before and these programs cycle through and they sort of put new skins on and they just sort of rebrand themselves and survive and just sort of do what they have to do in order to keep moving along i i think that's just layers of it that admittedly you don't need to know too much about it but it's an interesting Mm. note i think to kind of go oh okay so that happens in this in this world and Mm, yeah i mean if you've gone through you've gone through all the trouble of creating this crazy mythology of the matrix you might as well explore some corners of it and sort of say oh here's here's some things that happen and here's the bigger picture and how it all works so yeah, I think for that reason and many of the others we've discussed, it's, yeah, who knows? Maybe somebody listening will be encouraged to go and uh, watch these oh, again. I, ho- I do hope so. <laughs> I do hope so. The Merovingian um, is one of those people, you know, in Empire Strikes Back, when you meet Boba Fett and you meet the lineup of the different bounty hunters and, and you can just speculate as to what their backstories are. And it's, you know, it's, it's so cool to think about the part of the universe they inhabit. The Merovingian, I think, has a similar function it's a weird yeah. scene, like you say, the the orgasm cake scene and the, the ridiculous, <laughs> like almost offensively stereotypical French sort of characteristic, uh, you know, bursting from the screen. But his like the the idea of what he represents, he, he's a he's a remnant from a previous version of the Matrix, and he he collects he he, he collects. Um, all like defunct programs and he's kind of like a yeah the, the code version of a criminal um overlord 
And that kind of allows for things like, you know, vampires and werewolves are in these movies. You might not know it because it doesn't make it obvious, but you know, I just quite like the the corners that are teased of this of this world and it's not um immediately apparent, but it's quite fun. It's, like you say, it's quite fun to have that in there. It's it's a yeah, fun it's, little part. It's of just it. extra detail, yeah. isn't it? Just to sort of sprinkle in, it kind of fleshes the world out a little bit. Mm. Um, I think that's great. And speaking of villains, I mean, I think it would be remiss if we didn't discuss. We've we've already mentioned him a little bit, um, but yeah, the Agent Smith. I think probably one of the most instantly recognisable villains that I think in the sequels gets a really interesting twist and sort of mm, return. Yeah, that you, I I didn't see coming. I think. No, no, he's wonderful, isn't he? I feel like a lot of, of of this conversation is is us just saying, "Oh, this person's wonderful, this person's wonderful." But there are so many <laughs> wonderful performances in these movies, and he is yeah. just having so much fun. That his diction in these movies, I absolutely <laughs> adore. He just chews every word. Um, yeah, but he he's kind of the 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 evil twin to Neo in some respects. I think when Neo is set off on this new journey as the new one, um, he inadvertently frees Agent Smith from his uh, constraints as a an expression of the machines, and he's able to spread like a virus and, and permeate eventually in the second film, like you say, permeate the real world and bring about a whole new set of complications. Um, and, and yeah, it's it's really interesting. He he hates the Matrix as, as as a character. He he's a program who just absolutely despises the thing that he is inextricably a part of. So when he is quote unquote destroyed by Neo in the first film, and is actually freed, he he <laughs> he becomes this cackling pantomime villain, and it's um it's a hammy performance. And there's that clip of him doing the evil laugh in Revolutions that you can. <laughs> <laughs> you can take out a fun text and giggle at. <laughs> but he's just, he's having a bloody great time. He's loving it. He's just he's loving his freedom, and um, he just wants to destroy this thing that that that, that he hates. Yeah, it's. Uh, and it's an interesting counterpoint to someone like uh, Joe Pantoliano's Cypher in the first film, who um, it's a real shame that he isn't in, in the sequels because I love I love Joey Pants. He's, he's brilliant. But he, he's a guy who hates the real world and wants to get plugged back into the safe confines of the Matrix. And, and Smith is the opposite of that. He's a, he's, he's a, a creature who hates this um, system that he's an extension of and wants to be something more, which is kind of a, a, a protagonist's uh, goal as well. He, he's given a, a clear goal that's understandable and, and <laughs> could easily be that of a protagonist. And yeah, I mean, it's and it's it's very heavily foreshadowed in, in the first film, especially with that interrogation scene with him and Morpheus. I remember I loved that. I thought that was brilliant because it was just a, a sort of like a sprinkling of this character who previously is just uh, one of these suits, yeah, quite literally. Man in black. Yeah, it doesn't have any personality and, you know, and then all of a sudden, oh, no, he's he's got a personality. He's got a goal. And yeah. as you say, it's it's very clear and apparent. And and in, in a way, yeah, you, you could almost be forgiven for thinking that you'll never see him again in the sequel. Yeah. He's like, well, he was destroyed. He was defeated. And then he comes back and suddenly it's like, oh, OK, yeah. this is something <laughs> else. And I mean, again, slightly wonky CG aside, just by today's standards, because CG 
ages poorly most of the time. Um, that fight scene with Neo and like the hundred or so Smiths, I think it's spectacular. Like you look at it, it's truly groundbreaking for the time. Like no one had tried anything like that before. And yeah, it gets a bit cartoony, but it's like, again, you're in a, as you said earlier, we're in a hyper-realized world. We're in a yeah. computer program. Yeah, have some fun. Break some physics. Do some yeah. weird stuff with a pole that you pull out of the ground. <laughs> like, why not? <laughs> you know, why not have some fun with it? Yeah. No, it, it, it's very, very cool. And and I know that a lot is made, um, on that point, a lot is made about the innovations introduced for to allow for bullet time in the first film. And, and, and there's a lot mm. spoken about how they achieve the effect of uh, when Neo is dodging the bullets and leaning backwards and the camera kind of pivots around yeah. him in, 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 in real, in, in, um, at a normal pace, but just with the action around it slowed down. Uh, that's obviously an incredible, hugely influential effect. But, you know, there was stuff done in the sequels while slightly more dated on the face of it. The technology introduced to allow for that, the scene, the Burley Brawl that you're talking about, uh, this thing, Universal Capture, it was called, developed by George uh, Borshakov by ESC, which is a, a CGI wing developed by Warner Brothers to investigate these, um, to, to, to investigate the technologies required to do what the Wachowskis had in mind for the sequels, because, of course, you know, with the sequel, you've got to top what the original does. So, you know, um, they, they couldn't have used the bullet time technology for that fight or, or the fight at the end of Revolutions or any of, any of those things. So they invented this thing, Universal Capture, which allowed um, it can it's not the same as motion capture it's, it's a different form of, of mapping the actors faces and, uh, and, and and bringing to life these these fake environments but it, it's it's a, a little bit rough to the modern eye I suppose but what it's going for is yeah it's, it's hugely um it's hugely uh, ambitious for the time definitely and, and it's quite speaks a lot to their ambition as filmmakers and are you know VFX artists that they wanted to push the envelope so much. Yeah, and I mean, bear in mind they're, they're blending really high octane, crazy kind of mm. action as well. I mean, as you said earlier, that a lot of the cast all went through crazy amounts of training, mm. and, and they brought on the best people they could for it. Um, you know, so to do that with a blend, I, I just just as you were talking about the, the effects, just a one scene that flashed in my head. It's very minor, but I think it's brilliant. Is when uh, the the weird twins. Mm, the ghosts so show up yeah and then, and they, and you don't quite know what their deal is yeah. and then um i think it's as they're fighting it might have been trinity or one of them and i think she's got like a switchblade and she's just like trying basically trying to fend them off and yeah and as she's doing that like there's bits where they're jumping around and then they just sort of they would switch in and out of being themselves and then kind of being that mm. weird ghosty thing so stuff will just go right through them i mean that's incredible like i think just to blend that kind of crazy action and then effects and it, it yeah I think looking back on it, it looks, I think, pretty seamless for the most part. Yeah. Like it's, you know, and then it leads into, as we said earlier, one of like the greatest, I would argue, one of the greatest action sequences oh, ever, which is the freeway chase. Yeah, completely. Agree. I mean, let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, again, they <laughs> built a freeway. 1.5 miles, I think it was. I've got it noted down somewhere. Yeah, 1.5 mile freeway. Um, yeah, it, it, it is incredible, isn't it? it and and that, that is something, I think, as much as they do push the envelope with, digital effects they do an awful lot practical and i think they do as much practically as they as they can for a story like this um and it is yeah the, the i think 
I will concede that the opening half an hour or so, maybe even the first act of Reloaded, is, is a bit rough as you kind of you recalibrate to what the film is doing. But as soon as they, they meet the Merovingian, um, and then as soon as that conversation is finished, it is pretty much balls-to-the-wall action for the next hour or so. And it, it is some of the most well-realised, lucid, beautifully done stuff. Like you've got the fight in the foyer of the Merovingian's mansion, which leads into yeah. the freeway chase, which culminates in... Yeah, it incorporates hand-to-hand combat and gunfights and sword fights and all sorts of business, and it's so exciting. It is, yeah, it's. Um, I think I, I would I would agree it's one of the all-time set pieces. Yeah, definitely. and it's like and it blends as well for the characters. It really ups stakes because you know they're suddenly up against a whole host of villains. They've got the sort of criminals, as you say. Some of them are weird, glitchy programs. You don't know what they can do with like sort of supernatural powers, and then you've got the agents which themselves are kind of super strong and fast and so it's like yeah the whole time it's really tense because mm. you're just watching it and you're just like they are heavily outmatched here <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a case of they're just trying to run out the clock until either neo shows up yeah. you know or they can get to a phone or whatever and i think it kind of harkens back to that part of the first film which was you know when an agent showed up they were like nope run yeah you know just get out of there and it and it's really tense um so I thought it was quite a nice way of sort of upping the ante, but also taking you back into that first one a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it's, it's that sense of menace, which I think the the um, the, set, the back half of the first Matrix, like you say, with, with the agents and with the threat that they pose, there's a real sense of, of menace to them. And it gives a weight to the set pieces that I think some of the set pieces in the sequels don't have. But the reason the freeway chase, like you say, is so effective is because it brings back that sense of menace. It's got all these these unfamiliar elements, the ghosts, the agents, the, even the, the even the freeway itself, um, they've set up earlier on, never go on the freeway, it's, it's suicide, basically. So you have, you know, that the, the implications of what could the freeway bring? They're, they're, they're trapped without access to a phone for as long as they are, and, you know. So you, you, you're really taken away from the safety zone and you're put into this arena of palpable danger and it, it makes it so much more exciting when you feel the stakes on a on a on a human level like that it's very very cool it is isn't it and do you know what i even think back on the third film like i think it's it's tough because it does miss the the, the element that we all love which is the matrix you know that's largely removed from most of the films so i can understand that but then if you're following the journey as you sort of as very well explained throughout then it, it does at least answer some questions and it gives you an ending. And it's, I think it's quite satisfying in that respect. Definitely, and, yeah. You know, even the war in Zion, I thought was pretty, oh, pretty well done. There's some, there's some really cool designs yeah. and, and stuff that James Cameron definitely didn't rip off for Avatar. <laughs> you know, that's, that's in there. It's a give and take though. There's a give and take. I mean, it's like a fair <laughs> bit true. from aliens. And, uh, but again, speaking yeah. of menace, the, the war on Zion is really bloody. And, and I think that has a real weight to it. And yeah, the, the designs are absolutely stunning. Um, the amount, I think that that is probably, that's a perfect synthesis of CGI and physical sets and physical action. And I, I, I know, I, I find it very exciting. I've heard some folks call it too video gamey and just a bit, a bit too drab, I suppose. But I, I just think it's a really good see, it's a really good war movie. I and mean, it really works as a, as a, as a sort of last, last stand. And I think by that point, if you're on board, you really you have that emotional investment in in what this represents for the human race and 
certainly when I was watching it um, earlier in lockdown, I was so, I'd seen it before many, many times, of course, but I was really, really caught up in the the emotional crescendo that the Siege of Zion, you know, represents. It, it's, it's great, it's great. It's great. I mean, we can, we can talk about the philosophical undertones and, 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 and the emotions, but just as a pure piece of spectacle filmmaking, it's so cool. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah, I always say that to people as well, even if you don't get that the rest of it underneath, which is fine. Yeah, just enjoy it for what it is. It's a crazy action film with, so like you said, some incredibly unique aesthetics and things that you will never see again. And, um, you know, and not everyone's going to appreciate it. I, I will mention this because I know she listens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I took my wife to see the uh, 20th anniversary. Yeah. Um, and bless her heart, I don't think she realised how long it was. <laughs> she maintains that she enjoyed bits of it, but then, like, when she found out there was, like, another 45 minutes to go, she was, like, not happy. That, that's on me. I should have brought more snacks. But <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, have got, I have got the sequels. I've got the whole box set in the DVD cabinet, and I'm like, yeah. I need to crack it out and soon and watch it. And yeah. um, After my chat with Andy on here like i've now got all the yes. Rocky films lined up yeah, on yeah. prime so it's like i've got a lot of watching to do now oh me too I, I listened to that, <laughs> that that discussion great conversation by the way the, the rocky one and uh, i'm really hankering to rewatch those as well you guys yeah. did a great job oh, man thanks uh he's he's a oh you know he's your co-host he's, a... he's the best yeah he's he's, he's wonderful my uh, my pod partner I will say at the time of recording as well, you guys just put out a tweet um, for your ET episode, which I've got downloaded to listen to oh, tomorrow. Fair. But that picture you guys put up, <laughs> I just, just just head over to at Ramblin Amblin or at Fundamentals because either one of us will just tweet it. It's hilarious. I should say, I'm not going to say what it is um, because I, just want, I want people to go and see it for themselves. It's incredible. A, a former colleague of ours, a fellow called Steve Riley, he's the one who made that. Uh, he's very insistent okay. on making that, so I should should give him a shout out for for doing that. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. That made my day. It was amazing. Um, <laughs> I, I just want to ask then. So, what's the news on the sequels? Because I actually don't know an awful lot, other than mm. Keanu Reeves is apparently returning for a fourth film. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and I've heard drips and drabs of potentially other people being involved, but yeah, I mean, it's very hush hush. It's very hush hush, and I think um, I, I do quite miss the drip feeding of them. I, I kind of miss going to a film blind. I'd love to recapture the feeling of watching the first film, knowing so little about it. So I've not, I've not um, been that plugged into this, but I did do a little bit of, of looking around ahead of this. And it's on track for a release this year, the 21st of December. It had a lot. It was pushed back to next year. Then it was brought forward again. It's going to be released in cinemas and on HBO Max at the end of the year. Um, there's, there's no information about the story at all. All we know is that, yep, yeah, Neo is back uh, and Trinity is back. So funnily enough, the, the two characters that are definitively dead by the end of the third one um, are, are back. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne, I don't think he was approached to be in it. So Morpheus, as we know him from the third film, is not in it. But there were at one point rumours that there was going to be a younger version of Morpheus. And um, Yahya abdul Mateen the second, who was so good in uh, Chicago Seven as Bobby Seale earlier in this year. Oh yes, I saw that. Yeah, um, incredible. I yeah. think, I think, I think, I think the rumors are that he's playing a younger version of Morpheus. So I don't quite know what that would entail. Uh, what I do love is that Jada Pinkett Smith is back as Niobe. Uh, I love Jada Pinkett Smith. <laughs> I love seeing her in things, and it's 
she so rarely does film roles these days too so it's nice to see that she she's back our boy the merovingian's back as well he's on the cast list and weirdly enough um i know hugo weaving for a long time was was down to be in a potential fourth film as long as the wachowskis were returning uh i don't think he could make the schedule work so he's not going to be in it but uh daniel bernhardt who played agent johnson who is one of the other agents in the original trilogy he's back for this one as well so that's quite interesting and then you've got some really you've got some interesting folks uh in the supporting cast you've got neil patrick harris is there as well priyanka chopra is there uh, who was in the white tiger which was released on netflix last week which is very very good if, if you get a chance to watch that okay um I'm not on the payroll. I just, I just, it's a recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, so that's kind of all we know that it, it's, there was rumors of a reboot uh, about four or five years ago. It's not a reboot because the Wachowskis, well, not both of the Wachowskis. It is just Lana returning for this one. Um, writing and directing and producing. Uh, I think Lily is working on, tv series and so just sort of handed the reins to her sister for this one um so yeah it's 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 curious i know originally they were dead against making any more after revolutions they they saw it as a trilogy that was the end of the story um but you know if at least half of the wachowskis is back for this then i have faith you know no reason to to doubt them yet i'm a defender of jupiter ascending so i'll see anything that they Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So um, we'll watch this space. I think I think filming filming began February last year. Then it obviously was put on hiatus for lockdown. Then it resumed. I think late last year, maybe even late summer last year. Um, I'm not sure if they're filming still or if they've wrapped or if they've postponed again. But yeah, like the, the most recent release date is December this year. So watch this space i will yeah I, I, i'm very curious about it say, especially with that cast mm, and yeah some potential returning it does kind of make you sort of go hmm, okay <laughs> all right because because yeah as, as we've established really that it works well as a trilogy mm. and some story kind of ties itself up nicely so yeah who knows who knows where it goes we'll keep an eye yeah. on that uh, but is there anything else then josh that you'd, you'd love to kind of dive into on on this series um I, in terms of diving into, I think we've covered the the, the main the main um, areas. Something else I did want to bring up was that when the sequel the sequels were uh, announced, it was not just a part two and a part three, but it was a whole extended multimedia universe. And I know we've had obviously the Star Wars EU has a whole host of tie-in stories, and the the MCU has a whole pretty much any IP has multimedia tie-ins. But I think what the, the what the Matrix universe did was everything fed into everything else so there are parts of the matrix reloaded that kind of make more sense if you play the video game enter the matrix which do you play into the matrix <laughs> i remember yeah. that game, yeah i mean it, it wasn't good <laughs> don't get me wrong it was buggy and it no. was really counterintuitive <laughs> but you play as niobe and ghost in those in those in that game um so they're not a huge presence in in the films themselves but there's a load of footage that the Wachowskis filmed for that video game. And it does give... That's yeah, Because right. there were points yeah. when Jada Pinkett Smith has said that she wasn't sure if she was filming something for the movie or for the game. And <laughs> um, 
And then I've got beyond that, you've got the Animatrix, which um, I didn't get a chance to revisit ahead of this, uh, but really, really, really recommend watching those um, if you're a, a slightly curious listener and are tempted to delve into this world. Just give give one of those a go. Um, you've got a two-part prequel anime called The Second Renaissance, which kind of shows how the Matrix came to be, how the machines took over and how the Matrix came to be. You've got some really cool um, black and white noir stories in there. You've got some some awesome, um, at the time, cutting-edge uh, CGI dojo fighting animations. Um, it's just really, really cool, really cool. But I think basically the, the, the Wachowskis gave animators from around the world pretty much free free reign to do whatever they wanted within the confines of the Matrix universe. And uh, that's very, very cool. Um, there's some really interesting stuff going on in those films, and I would highly recommend seeking those out. Um, they are part of the Matrix box set, which I mentioned previously as well. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of the ten discs. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I haven't quite got that. I think I've just got the standard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have but... you seen the Animatrix? Have you seen any of the Animatrix films? I, I think I've seen one or two of them. It does ring a bell, like particularly the um the sort of origins yeah, of yeah. it because I, th- I thought that was quite a curious story and yeah yeah and how they how they pieced that together was quite good I, I haven't seen them for years but yeah you're right i remember the video game as well i think one or two of my mates at school had it yeah and then sort of checking it out and and as you say going oh there's scenes from characters yeah. in this and you're like oh that's actually quite cool that's quite <laughs> a, a unique concept i don't think yeah i don't think many movies necessarily do as much apart from as you say like probably mcu Star Wars, yeah. but that's more in like tv series as opposed to other stuff you know it's usually very separate isn't it what comes it's out. not yeah it's not essential it's just kind of supplementary material whereas this kind yeah. of again it's, it's not really essential but it does add important context if you want it i mean the the final flight of the osiris one of the animatrix films is a direct leads directly into the second movie and then enter the matrix happens alongside the second film as well so at the end of the freeway chase, Morpheus falls off the truck that he's fighting on top of and he lands on the car of Niobe and Ghost. And in the video game, you drive the car and you catch Morpheus. So it's, yeah, it's kind of cool um, um, jigsaw storytelling. Uh, yeah, so if you've ever watched that and you think, oh yeah, whatever happened to Jada Pinkett Smith's character during the film? Yes. She's in a video game, that's your answer. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant but uh, josh I, I think that's amazing thank you so much for coming on and and just talking to me about this stuff so uh for really for the good people listening where can they find you uh if, if you want you can follow me on twitter at josh underscore glenn um you don't need to do that i don't really tweet an awful lot but what i would recommend is to follow rambling amblin which is a podcast that myself and your former guest mr andrew Gerdion uh host and we're working through the films in the amblin filmography uh like you say we just released that et episode which um, um, one of us got very emotional uh, talking about. I'll, I'll let you decide who that might have been. <coughs> uh, we're recording <laughs> Gremlins next, which is I'm very excited oh, to rewatch. That's uh, I love yeah, that me film. too, man. Me too. Uh, so yeah, join us for the journey. Yeah, well, I'm to say I'm definitely subscribed, and I've plugged it before, but I'll plug it again. It's, it's well worth checking out, guys. It's it's incredible um, filmography that you guys have have gone through this stuff. <laughs> you've got quite the yeah you've got a quite the journey ahead of you we'll have you on of course yeah i think i andy said i am on at some point i don't want to spoil just yet which <laughs> one that is but i but i will be plugging it as soon as it comes out um 
But yeah, other than that, Josh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me and allowing me to talk about the Matrix films because not many people do. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> and there we have it. Thank you so much, Joshua, for coming onto the show and talking to me about all things The Matrix. That was a truly brilliant conversation. I hope you guys listening enjoyed it just as much as I did and got all of the amazing insights that Joshua brought to the table. If you want to hear more from him and more insights like this, which of course you want to, then head over to Rambling and Amblin Podcast, where he and previous guest, Andrew Godian, go through all of the movies under the Amblin production banner. It's a truly spectacular podcast with an amazing list of films that they are working their way through. Also, be sure to go and check out Josh on Twitter. I've linked that into the episode description, so you can go and find him there as well. Uh, I should point out that the... Um, obviously at the time of recording was a few weeks back they've done a few more episodes since but uh, yeah the et episode is absolutely brilliant and i've even linked in the specific tweet that has the picture in it again i'm not going to spoil it because it's hilarious you just need to go and see it and you need to follow at ramblin amblin as well on twitter because those guys just come up with not only great content but hilarious podcast introductions as well if you are enjoying this podcast, then by all means, make sure you follow me on both Instagram and Twitter at FundamentalsPod. Say hello. Any feedback you've given me will be greatly appreciated. And if you're kind enough to go and leave me a nice review on your chosen app of choice, five stars preferably, then definitely tell me if I miss it because you will have earned a shout out on the pod. That's enough for me. That's enough shameful plugging. I'll be back again in a few weeks time with a completely different guest on a completely different subject. So until then, stay tuned and stay safe.